From religion to wrestling, gumbo to grits, politics to poetry, and all things southern in between, this is Take on the South. Produced by the Institute for Southern Studies and hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, Take on the South examines the highs and lows of the American South, examines the truths and fictions of the country's most distinctive region, and picks the brains of some of its most accomplished students. To understand the South, you need to take it on, and that's what we'll be doing. Join us as we Take on the South. Welcome to Take on the South, the show that comes to you from the Institute for Southern Studies at the University of South Carolina. I'm your host today, Jennifer Gunter. I'm the director of the Collaborative on Race and an instructor in the Institute of Southern Studies here at the University of South Carolina. Today we're going to talk about dance as radical labor in their terms um, with Tanya Weidman Davis and Thaddeus Davis. We'll discuss the ins and outs of how these artists tell neglected stories through dance. Our guests today are a dynamic pair of artists, scholars, who together founded the Weidman Davis Dance and are associate professors in the Department of Theater and Dance and African American Studies at the University of South Carolina. Tanya and Thaddeus, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And so you're coming to us, you're, in, uh, you're here in Columbia, um, looks like a living room maybe, and I'm over here in uh, Gambrell Hall, Institute of Southern Studies here on campus. Um, so first off, can you give us a little bit of information about yourselves? Like where are you from and what drew you to dance in the beginning? Um, I am originally from Chicago, Illinois. And what drew me to dance was my mother. I didn't really have a choice in it. I started dancing when I was three. Um, and she actually put me in dance because I was ice skating and I kept getting a cold. And so she said, let me try something that's indoors. And so <laughs> I started dancing at three. And by the time I was probably about 10, I knew that I wanted to do it professionally. And I told her, I was like, I'm gonna move to New York and I'm gonna dance. And that's exactly what I did. When I graduated high school, I moved to New York and got a um, job with the second company at Dance Theater of Harlem and then worked with the second company for a year and then transitioned into the primary company and started my professional touring career from there. Wow, and that's where you and Thaddeus met. Is that correct? correct? Yes. And Thaddeus, where are you from? Yeah, I'm originally, I'm Southern. I'm from Montgomery, Alabama, originally. And um, I started to dance to become a professional football player, interestingly enough. Um, at 14, I think it was, I saw an episode of uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And Lynn Swan was on that episode. And he was in a ballet studio taking ballet class in the community. And I thought, well, if Lynn Swan has just figured this out and he's a professional already, if I started at 14, and I'm bound to be a professional football player. Well, it didn't quite work out that way, obviously. <laughs> uh, but I did find something in dance that was as physical as the, the football playing and the sports playing, because the body doesn't know whether it's running a ball, kicking a ball, or jumping, or turning. It doesn't know that. It just knows that it's doing labor. And so for me, dance, the transition from football to dance, I played, I played sports throughout my entire grade school years. And when I graduated high school, I went to Butler, I went to Alabama State University first for a year and a half. And then I went, quit that. And then I went to school full time uh, at Butler University and graduated there, moved to New York, studied for about six months before actually auditioning, because I went there particularly to, specifically to audition for Dance State of Harlem. Um, and then after six months, I went and auditioned. And like Tanya, I worked with the second company for about six weeks. Um, and then I started working with the main company. And then after a year, I got into the primary company, was there for a couple of years, and then toured around with other companies and then became a choreographer. Started work, making work. And then we got together and that's how it happened. <laughs> but I think I would have to say that, you know, us meeting in New York was really pivotal because New York is a hustle city. And so really that's how we got our work ethic by working in that market because it's so saturated with everything. 
And so in order to actually get a job in New York is a huge thing in our industry and be able to work consistently really for over 25 years is, yeah. is not something that is um, largely done in our industry, but it is something that that's how we got our education into the dance industry, that New York hustle market. And the kinds of artists that were working in the city were working in a variety of ways. Um, we were in a dance company that was a bath from, from the ballet lineage. But then I, for me personally, I left Dance Theater Harlem after four and a half years or five years. And I went to work with a choreographer, which is different than being in a rep company. A rep company means many choreographers come in and there's a lot of different kinds of works. Well, going to work with a choreographer is being in one person's laboratory and doing their concepts and working in their ideas. And so the question of how we began to merge social justice or, or content that is about people was my personally, my experience of working with Donald Byrd. And Donald Byrd, the choreographer, was about making abstract dances, but then also about making dances that were addressing issues and a host of many different issues. So basically making theater and not just relegating the body to being just an, 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 an animate object that moves around and make pretty shapes, but making theater that responds to everyday life. And I went and I worked with the choreographer in San Francisco, Alonzo King, and he has a choreographer's company. So his choreo company is called Alonzo King's Line. And that was an intensive and doing a completely different kind of aesthetic from the New York aesthetic to the West Coast aesthetic of combining contemporary ballet with um, cultural art forms and he, he was just really amazing at taking this um, narrow scope of ballet that you learn and taking it and flipping it open and saying, what can the form do outside of the traditional? You know, I have to say my first introduction to the work that y'all do was uh, December, I believe, 2017 at uh, the ceremony to unveil the markers uh, uh, acknowledging those who were enslaved here on, on campus. And we were in uh, Rutledge Chapel, uh, which was built with slave labor. Um, and to have, I think it was your students, uh, performing a work that you choreographed to Strange Fruit by, uh, or, or was made famous by Billie Holiday in the 1930s. Can you explain how that came about? So we were preparing for Migratus. We were in the research phase of Migratus. And uh, Migratus research started in 2016. And so in the process of doing that research, we collectively, Tanya and I, with a group of researchers, Michaela Pilar-Brown, who's an artist here in Columbia, uh, Myron Beasley, who was the anthropologist from Bates, uh, college, and Gina Kohler, who was our dramaturg. We all collected here in South Carolina and then traveled around the state and took images, ate food, just experienced the kind of culture that we didn't, I particularly, and Tanya didn't have um, experience with in South Carolina living. And so in that process, um, we did a lot of filming. And one of the things I was thinking about when making that piece was our dance program is probably 99% young white women. How can I infuse black faces? How can I, how, how can we, um, what is a black space? Does a black space uh, uh, come about as a result of black people dominating that space? Or as we know, a plantation is never thought of as a black space, but yet there are more black people there on would be, would have been on the plantation during enslavement than there would have been white people. And so what are the cultural references? And so that entire piece, which was called um, Black Gazing, was about um, responding to some of the imagery that we found. So there was this one uh, Friendfield Village, which is on the on Hopkow Barony Plantation in Georgetown, South Carolina, that we just, I just filmed just different images of this little village that actually African-Americans inhabited, which was a slave plant, plantation, slave quarters, but they inhabited to, into the 1970s. 
So after enslavement, they paid rent to live on this little Friendfield village. And so I took different images of the cottages and the slave quarters and just sort of projected them onto the stage for the actual full piece. And I chose Nina Simone because it's like, <laughs> it's one of those things, one of those kinds of jokes. It's like a, a rite of passage for black choreographers in some regard in New York. Like so many black choreographers, we work with the choreographer Dwight Roden who, of Complexions Contemporary Ballet. And he has a ballet from Nina Simone. Like so many black choreographers work with Nina Simone's music because it's just beautiful music. Um, and I had been working with different sections of that piece, of, 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 of her classic works. And then this strange fruit was, was just like hovering there. And I, I had known the words to it, but had never really stopped and read and really given deep, deep thought about what the words meant. Um, and so that piece, like many of the pieces that we make on students, it's not just us coming in the room and telling them what to do. We're coming in the room and engulfing them in the process of making this work and deconstructing and like analyzing and critiquing every aspect. And so the words were really um, important. And there was so, all kinds of symbolism, like um, the um, at in, in Tuskegee, there's a, a statue of Booker T. Washington unveiling, the uh, lifting the veil of ignorance. And so Booker T. Washington has a young person beneath him on their knees and he's lifting this cloth. And so there's an entire section that sort of take these classic gestures in black monuments, <laughs> interestingly enough, and it utilizes those image, the images of that to make movement from. And whenever I think both of us are working with students at USC or even choreographing on students, I feel a strong need to uh, build the muscle for these students to contend with content that is not white dominated. And so by bringing in this content that was really informed by our research from Migratus and doing a connection of the research that we do with our own company and our own professional work, it always extends to the studio somehow. And so giving access to these students to really think about like art making beyond just white dominated Eurocentric Western content. So when and how did you make the shift from primarily being artists into scholar artists? So how did you, uh, how did you get to South Carolina uh, to begin with and, and become uh, part of academia? By accident. <laughs> we, we didn't intend to be here. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, so there was a recession that happened when the housing market crashed, right? And we say that Whiteman Davis Dance or Thaddeus and Tanya, we had a recession before the country had a recession. Um, we were doing the thing that every other dancer was doing. We had danced in other people's companies and we were trying to have a dance company that was a dancing dance company. And we were paying dancers out of our pockets and living off of our credit cards. And we were working outside of New York and trying to take that money, that dollar that we made outside of the, of the city back to the city. And that dollar outside was a full dollar. When we took it to New York, it was like 50, 50 cents. cents. <laughs> <laughs> and so we almost lost everything. And then we were at Steps Taking Class, which is a, one of the dance studios where you can, commercial studios in New York where dancers go to take different classes. And uh, Claire was her name. Um, and she said, well, she came in the studio and says, Thaddeus, would you, would you like to go to Iowa? I said, uh, why would I want to go to Iowa? <laughs> she says, well, my boyfriend there, he's the director of the, the dance department and they need uh, a, a replacement for a semester. And so we didn't have any jobs. Some jobs had fallen through and we didn't have any jobs and no money. <laughs> and so we took those jobs and spent a semester in Iowa. And we had Alan Sainer, who was the director there, was just, I mean, amazing. He took care of us in this kind of really uh, compassionate way. He advised us that the kind of work that we were interested in, you should be at a research one institution because there's the kind of support that will make space for you to continue to develop the work and be able to broaden off into 
the idea of making it. So you've mentioned a couple of times Migratus. And uh, Migratus ataraxia has been recognized nationally as a tour de force and was highlighted on PBS NewsHour. Uh, the American Artscape magazine wrote, quote, by staging Migratus ataraxia at plantations themselves, Weidman Davis Dance is reclaiming these historic sites as black spaces and de-invisibilizing, as Weidman Davis termed it, the black lives that are at worst erased and at best reduced to incomplete accounts of physical labor. Can you explain how this work came about? Yeah, we've been thinking a lot about black invisibilization and environments. And we were working on a project in Germany with Michaela Pilar Brown, and this was at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement. This was what, 2016? Yeah. And we- So the, the first Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so we were experiencing being invisibilized in that environment and we decided that, you know, we were going to take the work that we had done there and bring it to Columbia and really think about how we could go into internal spaces and thinking about, um, what were we thinking about in context of transferring that Germany? Because you do a wonderful explanation of the Germany-Columbia uh, transition. So there was like, there were many things that were going on at that time, not just Black Lives Matter, but also the refugees were being brought in to Europe. And no one wanted to bring them in. No one wanted to accept these refugees. There, were, there was a lot of conversation. And Germany was saying that, well, yes, we will, because we always have. And so when we got through with the, with the residency, we had to travel back to the United States. And our plane was canceled several times. So we were stuck. And they we were in at the airport and they didn't say, OK, go to gate six and you'll get on the bus. They said, OK, all the people that have been stranded, go to one, go to gate one. And so we go there and people are running to get on this bus and not just a few, not one plane, but masses of people. And so we spend the night at a hotel on the side of the highway. We were shuttled down to breakfast. We were shuttled. We had to have a card. So it was this experience that made me really want to get back to America, want to get back to the United States. And we talked a lot about, well, we say in America, we take care of our own. Who are our own? And in, it was a height of nationalism. In Europe, each country was saying, we only want people that are natives from our country, German nationalists, French nationalists, Greek nationalists, we want those people here. And so it was before it had come to, to the U.S. It was like on its way. And we were thinking, what's going on? And then we got back here and we were like, we have to continue this work. And we were trying to find a way to build a collective here in Colombia where a collective of artists could come together and work. Because in Germany, we work with the collective IHOC X, who their mantra was, we're stronger as a collective and able to garner more support both financially and in community as a collective than we would individually. And so we were thinking of trying to experiment with that idea. And so we began to collaborate with Michaela for this work, Migratus Adaraxia, and thinking of how can we um, go back to the soil that we came from yeah. as African-Americans, yeah. not thinking about the transatlantic slave trade, but thinking about it in terms of once we got on the boat and we got to Southern um, soil and thinking about our existence on the, those uh, Southern soils that are across the Southeast east region of the United States. And then there was this thought of like, you know, um, DNA.com and all of those sort of genealogy websites. And that thing was kind of just coming into our, um, purview. And we just, we've, I know we talk a lot about, well, how can you tell me exactly where I'm from on the continent of Africa? How can you take my blood and tell me exactly that I'm really, because I can't even trace, I've learned I can to a certain extent now, but I can't go back and say what boat I got off of. And who was the slave, the enslaved person that landed, that spawned the generation that revealed that, you know, eventually I come from. 
I can go back maybe three generations. And after that point, the records get shady because enslaved people were livestock. So you had three slaves and you had a horse, you had a chicken. And so all of those questions brought about, well, who were these people aside from their bondage? What was their humanity? Where is the humanity in these people? And again, what is a black space? And where do black, what is black citizenship? Where do black people go for tranquility and peace? And also, you know, humanizing the slave experience beyond just the labor of work and really thinking about these individuals as thinking human beings who were living lives and who were actually living lives for survival, who actually had, you know, utopic ideas of what life could be beyond this bondage. I, I had a, um, the pleasure of, we had the pleasure actually of being here at the University of South Carolina when Kwame Dawes was here and Kwame being a, um, a, a mentor for us when we first got here. And I, also, I had the pleasure of working with Kwame for my graduate work and taking his wisteria and using wisteria, his book of poems, wisteria, and using that to make work and to think about what Southern language is about. And I think that when you th think about being a scholar, Kwame was the first, I think, scholar that I, I, was, I began to work with intimately with that person's work and use their work as a reference for me to go back. Hmm, let me make a dance about these ideas that he's tossing around based on the women in Sumter, South Carolina. Um, and that experience opened me up to a whole new way of thinking about how I could exist and still be an artist, but yet think of the scholarly sort of aspects of how it could influence the kinds of things that I was thinking about. But also that, you know, we have to acknowledge, you know, gender representations, that women are often left out of the context of generative scholarly work when it comes to actually thinking about dance and making dance, that it is a form that is often made on the female bodies, but leaving the female out as an, a, a thinking actualizer. So I had the honor of seeing kind of part two of, of this work. Um, and I know that uh, the coronavirus pandemic put, put a wrench in what you have been planning. So can you tell me about um, or explain how you took what was in your mind but transformed it into an outdoor, I mean, it was so stunning it was uh video and music and you know just kind of living art and we got to um we started off in the backyard of one of the plantation houses here in in columbia um and then we got to walk across downtown columbia in the dark and just kind of in silence too and thinking about what we have been seeing so can you explain how you um, kind of shifted from an interior space uh, to the exterior? Well, the COVID shutdown gave us a lot of time to reflect on that Migratus project. And post the George Floyd um, experience, we were thinking, well, does it really make sense to go back into the antebellum plantation? Why don't we go into Black spaces and really think about Black liberatory spaces that are in Southern environments and how can we enliven those spaces? And so we were really interested in working in the Majeska Simpkins home and the Man Simons home. And so since our original production was actually workshopped at the Hampton Preston Mansion, we included that as, you know, the starter environment for the work and really thinking about, you know, the transatlantic slave trade and putting, you know, footage of um, the water and having a sonic component of the water being projected on the Hampton Preston home. So putting you in an outside environment that's really containing you 
and making you think about the emotionality of that experience sonically, physically, as well as, you know, just the, the sight. And so we wanted to actually have an experience that was mobile. So thinking about migration, so migrating from the antebellum home, migrating to the man Simon's home, then migrating to Majeska Simpkins' home as these environments that were really, you know, liberatory environments for Black folks. They were they were havens for Black people during historic, um, the, the 1886 to 1966 or 68. And this work that these people were doing in these environments were really about sustaining Black life. And there was, there was a big part of it that was us saying, well, in essence, we've repeated, like decolonization is a real thought for us. <laughs> like how do we decolonize our minds when colonization is a part of our existence? We're Americans. We are Americans. So the ideas that permeate the main mediation of culture and existence are part of our upbringing. So when we did Migratus, people, there was a, an organization that we were trying to do it with in Alabama. And they said, you can use the outdoors yards. You can use the yard. That'd be great. Or the slave quarters. The slave quarters. And we were like, no, because we were enslaved people working in the house. And so in essence, colonized our colonized minds, just a certain way of thinking about it. But we thought we didn't uh, hold the ground to be sacred in the ways in which we later started to think about, well, if they worked in the soil, the blood, sweat, and tears were in the soil as much as they were in the housekeeping. And so when COVID hit, and actually the George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, we found that the plantation and, and sort of pushing back against that became less important. And spaces of liberation like Man Simmons House, that in 1863, I think it was, these black, free black people owned a house in Columbia, South Carolina in 1863, before the Civil War, they owned this house. And so to be able to migrate from the plantation to that house, and then later the next generation, Majeska Simpkins' house, mm -hmm. that was a kind of um, um, collaboration in work with Historic Columbia over time that allowed us to think about that. And then COVID and this pandemic shutdown gave us time to reflect and be able to figure out how we could reveal a, even a new version of Migratus, because this version is totally a new, it's really a new piece. It's not the original at all. Um, but I think also using dance as an aesthetic language to evoke emotion and feeling and using technology to enhance that, and also using the whole experience to uh, almost evoke a visceral reaction with the audience in terms of having to actually put your body in the work to walk from site to site to experience it differently than just sitting in a theater and being immobile. It's not a passive experience. And we were, from the beginning, we were very adamant about not interpreting history by retelling a reenactment. We were not about a reenactment. We were about human existence. And so we used these digital platforms, digital media projections as portals to be able to take us back in history and to project forward to future possibilities and imagery, not so far back, maybe to the 1930s and 40s when the University of South Carolina began to land grab the black communities around the institution to develop the University of South Carolina. So as you walked along that walk, there was one house where you had to walk up on our porch and see what the community once looked like when black people were there and how they don't exist, those, that community doesn't exist anymore. So as we transition Migratus from its original plantation confrontation, we're going on and moving forward in life to the greater migration of how do we sustain humanity for black life and black spaces in a current existence in the mid-century and then now in 2020 and 21. But Jennifer, I would ask you, what did it feel like to put your body in the performance 
with the performers? Oh gosh. It was, uh, it was really moving and emotional for me. Uh, it was one of those like, there were almost no words because like I got the, um, all the water imagery and the sounds. And then you had, um, uh, uh, the artist with uh, her amazing headdress, which was, uh, shaped like a ship. So you had this imagery of like the movement of the ship. Um, and the way that you all are able to tell a story so emotionally and so completely with no words is uh, just remarkable. And I have to tell you, it was probably one of the absolute coolest experiences of my life. (laughs) I mean, that kind of thing just does not happen. You know, an outdoor moving art piece um, that covers, um, so the Hampton Preston House uh, was first bought by Wade Hampton the first, who you know fought in the War of 1812, and then is passed down to Wade Hampton the second, and the third, who becomes um, you know the redeemer, what we know as the redeemer uh, governor of South Carolina, and overturns all of Reconstruction, and the way that you all like the idea to uh, project those images on the back of of that house. And it kind of took, to me, it was like you were taking the power away from that house and focusing it on the people who uh, who are um, working there, but also their descendants. So I do know from my work that um, at one point, they enslaved 80 people at that site, at, a, at an urban site. Um, and then, you know, moving over um, several blocks to the Man Simons um, site where it was uh, freed black people and then owned by a free black woman who supported herself and her family as a midwife. Um, and then they created the churches here. Um, and then I really, part of it to me, and I don't know if you thought about this, but that that site was slated for demolition during yep. urban renewal yes and was yes. saved by black folks in Colombia. that this is an important site to us and so part of our migration was past the the one building that was put up during urban renewal so it was a lot of things and maybe because of you know my own personal research and understanding of that space um to end at Majeska Simpkins' house, um, who uh, one of one of my favorite quotes of hers is, um, "I am a statement." You know, she's the godmother of uh, of civil rights in South Carolina, um, and to end there was just really powerful. Um, I, I, yeah, I am still unpacking what I saw and experienced several months ago. But there's also something about, you know, this, these hidden narratives of the women who did the work. And the man Simon's home, oftentimes for me, it feels like it, it gets narrated about, you know, the two grandsons more so than the original owner. And then we go to the Majeska Simpkins house and that labor was so transgressive and that that is not taught in every single discipline that we have, you know, in a, in our university, I just feel like is a missed opportunity because there's so much there. I mean, she curated performative events in her house. And it was like, wow, this woman was like so ahead of her time and working in so many different lanes that, you know, from public health to performance, like who would have thought? And her story explains, you know, the just the depth of people that we sometimes forget. Um, and that 
and that she cared so deeply about her people and her community that she literally put her life on the line. And she was, you know, a, not a large person, um, but uh, I do know that she received several bomb threats. Uh, they shot through her front window. It's a small little kind of cottage house, um, and she never backed down. It's a beautiful story, and I, and I agree. I mean, yes, there is a portrait of her in the state house, uh, but there needs to be so much more. When you say when you say the that the Man Simmons house was saved from urban renewal, and so in our process of working there, so we we made the new work from Chicago and teaching virtually and rehearsing virtually, and then we came back to South Carolina and spent I think three weeks actually installing and figuring out how to do the route because planning on paper is different than actually being on the ground. Uh, but we actually worked there at the site and experienced that, you know, urban renewal is still happening, that they're tearing down the towers. And so the question was, where will these people go? As the, as the audience that was that knew about the performance would come, but we had been performing for the people in the towers for our entire rehearsal period. And where will they go? Because now we have a new um, Bull Street district, which is great, nothing against that. That's wonderful advancement. But if that's going to be there, these people can't remain here. And that those two worlds collide and that inevitably urban renewal says we got to move the towers. And I'm not saying that the towers are great because they do look like they need to be updated and refreshed and made brought into current times. But again, where will these people go? We, you know, we seem to do that a lot in Columbia. Um, we, they, uh, the area of Gonzalez gardens was demolished, um, Gosh, several, several years ago, and still nothing has been built there. And then Allen Benedict Court uh, was evacuated, uh, and those people were, some of them still living in hotels even a couple of years later. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting to kind of be witnesses of this gentrification of um of an urban area here in Columbia. Um, so I want to ask, how do you think your work contributes to our understanding of the U.S. South? I think the work that we do is really going in and maybe embodying stories that have not been told. And we're really interested in like those micro stories. So just going in and like, well, like deconstructing the micro stories, like what was actually, you know, happening in terms of like lived experience and what these people were going through viscerally. And I don't know that, you know, it's giving any great insight to anything. I just know that these are stories that we are connecting to and we feel like, we connect to them because they are human stories. And if we can tell them, then maybe someone might be interested in actually viewing it. The thing that we've learned, or when we, we performed Migratus in Harpersville, Alabama. And so Harpersville is a rural community. Um, and we had an experience where uh, the audience came and this particular night, it was the community of Harpersville because it's a part of this, this performance is a part of a dance festival. So there are people who attend the festival for, to take dance classes and be a part of the festival and they come, but this particular night was the community. And so we're at the end of the piece and it ends with a song by James, uh, by Al Green. And so this man says to his wife, girl, that's Al Green. She goes, shh, I know, I know. That's Al Green, girl. And so the thing about Black performance is that Black people speak back. Call and response. We respond. That the thing that we experience in a performance 
it heightens us in a way that we have to lash out and go, yes, that's it. And that at that moment, thinking about thinking uh, since then, thinking back about that, the notion that sophistication only happens inside of a theater in a city, a big city, is crashed because people are sophisticated and they have different nuanced levels of sophistication. And I don't even know if sophistication is the right word. So when I think about our work and reflecting the South, it's reflecting a kind of embodied knowledge that is not about a book. It's not about um, um, busting atoms or trying to find the, the, the perfect number that is equivalent to pi. <laughs> But it is about all of those things and so much more. And you know, what we're thinking about, like we're, we're, we're starting to move towards bridging some of the communities we're working with in the South. And one of those communities is Montgomery, Alabama. And we're thinking, well, just like the people in Montgomery have said to us, we're more than the trauma that we're associated with. We're more than the lynching museum. We're more than the slave memorial. We're more than the civil war and civil rights. There were people here that were other than Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and George Wallace, that there were everyday people here that just lived life and made life good for black folks to be able to survive. We know because Thaddeus Davis is a product of Montgomery, Alabama, and I still exist. So I think when we think about, for me, Southern stories and our contribution, it's about lifting up those because they're as, as they're as sophisticated as the biggest big wig story there is. We've also, you know, been having many conversations with Southern presenters around the Southeast region of the country, and they actually name the Southeast as a dance desert. And they name it a dance desert because it's not like the East Coast. It's not like the West Coast. It's not like the Midwest. It doesn't have a large influx of generative dance that comes out of the South. That's just the reality. But when we do go back to the South and actually look at those stories and start to make work about the environments that we were in, we can create work that is as cultured as the so-called East and the West. It is work that is as important as the East, the West, the Midwest. It is work that really is the root of what actually ends up getting to the East and the West and the Midwest. And so you come back to the Southern environment and it's just like, this is where it happened. Like this is where the cakewalk was. This is where, you know, those plantation dances were made that now are on the concert dance stage that have extended into hip hop, which has extended into a whole nother breadth of generative dance. We come back to these spaces and it, it really is like a, a landing. And then there's, there's the thought, of, thought for me about like if I were to reference hip hop music and like, you know, the dirty, dirty and Atlanta becoming this hip hop scene of, of cracking open and saying, no, we're here. We have a specific kind of trap music that we're going to make about our experience. And that's really for us what it's about. It's about we live in the South and we want to make work that reflects the environment that we living, we're living in. And it's about some of it is not a pretty story, but it's about thinking about the humanity inside of some of that ugly because people survived. And, and we have proof, right? Proof. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I think I've told you all that I show clips of that to my class now. I teach Southern Studies 1580 to 1900. Um, and I show it because exactly that, it shows the humanity inherent in those people and just the idea that there was love and there was certain kinds of joy amidst all of the oppression um, that uh, transcends the the story that we're typically told 
about, you know, um, usually when, when we study slavery, we study it as a monolith, the enslaved. We don't think about these individual folks who, you know, have to get up every morning and think about the future and think about their children and think about all of these things. And so I think that's one of the big draws of the work that you've done. But I do love this concept that you're taking it into the future. So thinking about what what's on the horizon, what's what's happening now? We have a couple projects that we're doing before December even gets yeah, here. Yeah. So we have a Southern Foodways documentary, performative documentary that we're doing that is going to be premiered in October at the University of Mississippi. And we've spent really the summer working on that. With um, the Southern Foodways Alliance. Yes. Tell me everything. So, so I got <laughs> my bachelor's and master's there in Southern studies. Okay. Um, and I teach a lot of food ways because it's ways to tell stories that um, aren't in quote unquote documents. Yeah. Um, and I do know that when you have performed Migratus, uh, you like to end with a meal. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So, yeah, tell me, tell me all of this. <laughs> so with this project, we went back to our own families and started to really think about migration and foodways and how that has really informed our migratory practices, but our migratory food practices yeah. as well. Um, so what we did was the crew came to Chicago and shot my grandmother making our family pound cake. And we went and filmed in certain sites in Chicago that were pivotal in my life and pivotal in my grandmother's lives. And, and we wrote a script that narrated my grandmother and my mom, my, my mom and my connection to these foodways of her amazing cooking. And also my connection with my grandmother in terms of she was the one who took me to ballet. She was the one who like really was the catalyst to my dance studies in Chicago. And and then from there over the summer, we in August, in August, we went to Alabama and we did similar things with my family around the sweet potato pie. And so uh, shooting my mother making sweet potato pie of which she learned from her mother, um, our connection with our old family house, my grandmother and grandfather's house that my mother grew up in and I grew up in. And really the idea or the premise behind the story was the food ways that nurtured us as Tanya and us as humans, as young people, and then us moving to New York and finding our own food ways inside of a city that had, you could go anywhere in the world in New York City and living there for nearly 20 years and developing a new palette, not just because you develop a new palette because you get a new taste, but because you're a dance artist and you have and to- And you're traveling. And you're traveling. So you have to develop a new palette. What you get in New York is gonna be completely different than what you get in Istanbul, Turkey, if yeah. you're on tour. Yeah. And then also for health purposes, as we get older, what do we need to do to maintain our energy level to be able to teach or dance or work all day differently than it was if we were not dancing? And so the, the migration in physical space, but the migration of the actual tongue palate and the change in diet mm -hmm. as we get older and we move away from living in the South and then saying, yes, for me, I love sweet potato pie, but I can't eat that anymore. So then what's that connection when we go back to our families yeah. and we don't eat the things that they make anymore. Yeah. And so they transition into making new things for us. Yeah. So that entire experience. And so we're working with um, Brian Foster, who was at University of uh, South University of uh, Mississippi, Mississippi in Oxford in the psychology, sociology, sociology. He's He's now in, uh, he's now moved on to Virginia. University of Virginia. University of Virginia. And Ethan Payne, who's a filmmaker who also works with the Southern Foodways Alliance. And we did a lot of writing and Ethan took all, I mean, Brian took all of our writings and then took that and made a script. So there are three stories. There's Tanya's story, there's my story, and then there's us coming together. 
So really the merging of two families um, through food, through movement, through dance, through lived experience of Alabama and Chicago, and then Tanya being parents being from Mississippi. So that's what we'll, we'll premiere that in October. October. October mm -hmm. at the Southern Foodways Alliance. So that's our annual conference? Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. yes. And yep. is this going to be a virtual experience? Will other people be able to check it out? I think maybe you can virtually get connected to it somehow. Yeah. I'll, but I think it is a full on face to face experience. For now, it's a, yeah. Yeah. Because we're actually doing a, a performative component to it as well. So it will be shown and we'll have performative events that are happening during that. That's really exciting. Um, and it reminds me uh, that several years ago, you both uh, went through the training to be facilitators for Welcome Table with all of our dear friend Susan Glisson, um, yes. who is still in Oxford, Mississippi. So yes. um, we'll have to make sure that- uh, And Charles. Uh, can't forget Charles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, the world is funny in that I knew Charles way before I knew Susan uh, because he was a regular at the bar I worked at in Jackson, Mississippi when uh -huh. he was working at the newspaper there. Ah. And it's before, and it's also before they met. And then I went to school at University of Mississippi, and Susan was, uh, I took a class from her on civil rights history, uh, which, uh, you know, blew my mind because she, you know, she, she knew those people. She talked about, well, when I was working with Chuck McDew and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I love the way that the world comes together. Uh, because they they do really phenomenal work. Um, so, what other art forms inspire you? I know um, uh, last year at our conference, Thaddeus, you introduced um, our keynote speaker, who is Kiese Lehman, um, who is also in Oxford, Mississippi now. Who's uh, gone? He's at Rice now, I think. Did he move? I was he he left and went to Rice. I, I think it's Rice in Texas. In yeah, Houston. yeah. I think that's where he's gone. Um, I don't know if anyone's supposed to know that. I guess school started by now, and so I guess it's <laughs> public knowledge. <laughs> so, uh, but I know you're a big fan of his writings. Um, what other art forms or uh, Southern art forms, painters, poets, uh, filmmakers inspire y'all? I have to say, I have always been inspired by architecture. Um, my next door neighbors were architects and they used to babysit me. And it was always just a part of my life. I'm from the suburb where Frank Lloyd Wright lived. So it was just, it was always in my education. And when I moved from Chicago, it was always something that I gravitate to whenever I go and I live in a city, I go and I look at the architecture first. And that informs the, the form and structure in which I think I choreograph. That's really interesting because you do incorporate the built environment uh, in the work that you do. That's fascinating. How about you, Thaddeus? I've, I've been like, there are a couple of people that I troll <laughs> uh, and they're not particularly, well, no, Arthur Jaffa, who is a filmmaker from Mississippi, from uh, Tupelo and uh, I forget the other city, but he's from Mississippi and he did Daughters of the Dust. He was the uh, cinematographer for Daughters of the Dust uh, with his wife um, at the time, who was the director and writer of that film, whose name escapes me now, and I apologize for Julie that. Julie Dash. Julie Dash, right, mm -hmm. right, right. Um, and so I've always been fascinated with technology and how can we use technology in a way to continue narratives and continue commenting on situations. So Arthur Jaffa, I've, you know, I, I look at a lot of his work. I, I listen to him talk a lot. Um, but I think, you know, in the, in the literary world, Tanya and I both have been influenced by um, 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 Bell Hooks. Sarah Ahmed. Sarah Ahmed, uh, Judith Butler, um, you know, and the list goes on and on of like wonderful writers that we're just like, wow, we have to fill up in order to be able to do this kind of work and have a lot of different, I'm, I'm reading, a, um, I read a, reading a book now 
uh, on Ralph Lemon, who's a choreographer from Minnesota, actually, who did this series of works geography that took place, one took place in Mississippi. And he would go from Minnesota to work with this couple who weren't dancers, an elderly couple, who they would just go and work in, in this rural part of Mississippi on this farm, and they would make stuff. It wasn't dance-related making stuff, but you know, to do that kind of work and to be intimately engaged with people over a period of three years, I, I have a certain admiration for it. And, and it helps me think about, well, again, if they're doing that and he's in Minnesota and we're in the South <laughs> and we're living and breathing the heat and the humidity and we're right here next to people, like it just changes how life is for us, I think. Um, so. Yeah, you know, it'd be cool, Jennifer, hmm. if we started a reading list. So all the people that you're podcasting, we all just like start a reading list and we can filter off of, you know, each other. And because I love to see what other people are reading. I love to see what other people are looking at and thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually reading um, uh, one of my favorite writers is Sandra Cisneros. Uh, she's a poet and a novelist. Uh, and she was being interviewed by New York Times and they asked her, you know, what's on your nightstand? Um, and I found out that she and I are very similar in that there are just towers of books all over the house. But by reading through that list, I was making my own list. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I need to read all of them. I went and like bought three of them, you know. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I'm all I'm all for that. And I realized by reading her list how much. I actually miss poetry. I don't actually read much poetry anymore. I feel like it's a luxury that I just don't have time for. And I'm going to have to um, get back to it, I think. Um, the Are only you familiar with mm -hmm. Natasha Trethewey? Oh, yeah. She's from Mississippi. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I joke that people from Mississippi know all the good things <laughs> about Mississippi. Uh, yeah, she has that new book out as well, um, which is In the Tower. Uh, but yeah, her stuff is, is really wonderful. Um, but I'd like to revisit some, since I'm here, some of Nikki Finney's work mm -hmm. uh, that yeah. I haven't yeah. really connected with in probably yeah. a decade. Yeah. Um, because yeah. as you all, as scholars, right, uh, sometimes we get just locked into, you know, research, research, research and forget that, you know, reading poetry can also be a form of research, especially when you're working like, like, oh, like the three of us do with human beings. Yes. Yep. Yes. Um, yeah. So is there something that you would like to say um, that I forgot to ask? No, I, I think at this point for us, what has been really pivotal is being able to have connections outside of Downs. That, you know, we, we've worked in this field for so many years, but we can only um, develop the ideas and build upon the ideas that we have if we move outside of dance and look at dance as a social structure that is political, that it's a part of every um, historic time period that movement has been generated in reference to what is going on politically. And we have to stay politically and socially engaged in order to make the kind of work that we do. And that could mean like expanding the thought of what dance is, like taking the dance out of it and using that word that Tanya says, movement, the civil rights movement. And in any, inevitably and in any dance you watch, at some point, some people are gonna walk. Oh, that's the Selma to Montgomery walk. Right. So like movement, the action of protest, the action of doing something is actually a movement. And that um, the more we expand beyond a singular in a studio 
making dances, the more open we become and the more possibilities we are to, to, we can't politically, we don't politically go to the state house or to the white house as politicians. So change for us is not in the political arena in that way, but we make effort to address concerns and issues of our community and people that look like us through the work that we make. And so again, everyone doing their part in the way that they do it can help bring about change. And that's what we hope that the work that we're doing is a part of. Oh, thank you all so much. This has been amazing. Um, and like we said earlier, we could probably keep going for um, for a really long time. And maybe we will in the future. Uh, we'll come back <laughs> and revisit this. But uh, thanks again to uh, Tanya Weidman Davis and Thaddeus Davis from uh, the Weidman Davis Dance. And uh, this has been Take on the South. Thank you. That was our Take on the South. Let us know yours. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at U of SC South. Take on the South is produced by Matt Simmons of the Institute for Southern Studies. Special thanks to Professor Dave Garner of the University of South Carolina School of Music for composing our music. Tune in next time for another Take on the South. Thank you.